Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 19. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about this? Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, also you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then the young man said to him, I have kept all these, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard the word, he went away grief, grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For, for mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. For the word and God and for the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Campbell, for that wonderful reading of Scripture. Those were a lot of words. I'm sorry for the length there. And let's once again congratulate Campbell and all of our third graders who received their third grade Bibles today. What a tremendous moment in the life of the church and the life of faith. I have my third grade Bible here with me today with all of my handy tandy tabs here. And I've got the signatures. Actually, mine was given to me in senior high because somehow I missed third grade Bible day in my home church. And so it was fun opening it this morning and seeing the signatures of Katie and Drew and Aaron, some of my friends from youth ministry and Sandy and Scott, the leaders who helped form me in my faith. Let us be in prayer as a community that we could continue to raise up children in the faith um, and that we could uh, be those kinds of signatures in their lives that they could look back one day and, and be grateful for as I am today. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm the senior pastor here at Arapahoe. I want to welcome you to worship this morning. And if this is your first time joining us or if you're not yet receiving communication from us, I want to invite you to go to our website, arapahoeumc.org slash new. You'll fill out a short form there, and that'll sign you up for our weekly newsletter. It'll also get you a personal contact from me and another pastor on our staff. Today, we're continuing in a sermon series that we have titled Called Out, where we're looking at some selections from the Gospel of Matthew, where, uh, as I like to call it, the gospel for good churchy people. Because in Matthew, Jesus frequently offers his most challenging words, not to those who would oppose him, but actually to those who seek to follow after him. And it's a helpful reminder to, to those of us who may at times think that we've got faith figured out or we get a little comfortable in our religion that, that Jesus is here to save Christians too, right? As uh, Rob Bell said in one of his books. Today we're going to talk about the rich young ruler, the scripture that Campbell just read for us this morning. We're going to talk about money and faith. And I know that's everyone's favorite topic in church, but uh, I want to say from the outset that I find uh, 
talking about faith and finances, it should be a freeing conversation. It shouldn't be one that makes us feel awkward. It ought to be one that allows us to find some freedom in our lives and also one that does challenge us in our faith, but ultimately one that leads us in spiritual practices that are good and life-giving for us. So, um, to get us into this conversation on money, I want to start in a place that you're probably expecting me to, and that is with jalapeno potato chips. So when my wife and I, let me explain, when my wife and I first got married about nine years ago, we had been married for about one month, and I, and I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to do a really good new husband thing. I'm going to prepare a meal on a random Tuesday night. I love to cook, and at that time, I wasn't quite as good as I am today, so I went to the store, and I bought some, you know, box spaghetti, and I bought some store-bought uh, pasta sauce, and I bought some store-made store uh, uh, meatballs, and I took them home, and I made it all together, and I, I even plated it in a little bowl, sprinkled some Kraft Parmesan cheese on top, because I'm classy like that, restaurant quality, and I, I placed it there for dinner, and uh, I thought to myself, wow, she is going to be so impressed. Reagan's probably thinking to herself, how lucky am I to have landed a guy like that? This was a smooth move for me, and so I watch her as she twirls that piece of spaghetti, and she gets a little bit of meatball, and she takes that first bite of this home-cooked meal, and I'll never forget her face of absolute disgust as she spat out everything in her mouth and looked at me, confused, angry even. What is this? She said, why is it so spicy? It's at that moment that I realized in a meaningful way that I had married a woman from Kansas. And for those who don't know, that's one of those rectangle states uh, north of us. And if you look in the pantry of any cans and, and you look in their spice cabinet, you'll find salt and pepper and not much more than that. I, I came to understand that the spice level tolerance uh, for people from Kansas is a little bit different than people from Texas like me. So now I am a household that buys mild salsa. Please pray for your pastor. But I explained to Reagan, this is called arabiata pasta sauce, and basically what it is is just normal marinara sauce that has, and I mean a sprinkling, a very modest amount of red pepper flakes uh, strewn throughout the jar, and she looked at me and said words I'll never forget, how could you do this? And so now when I go to the store and I want to buy potato chips that are mine, I buy jalapeno potato chips because just like Joey from Friends, Scott doesn't like to share food, and those I know will remain mine. Now, this is kind of a silly example to get us underway, but greed is a little more insidious when we graduate from simply withholding our jalapeno potato chips to withholding our personal finances or the power therein. Jesus understood that, and that's why I think Jesus talked about the issues of money and finances so frequently, because especially in his culture, not unlike ours, money and, and power and status were at the forefront of so many people's minds, and it had begun to infect the way they viewed their faith. And Jesus is here to call us out of that mindset and mentality in the story of the rich young ruler. So let's, let's dig into the scripture together and learn more about who this rich young man is, why he struggles to follow after Jesus, and the broader message that Jesus has, not just for us, but for our surrounding community as well. So to help put our minds in and put ourselves in the, in the shoes of this rich young man, we need to understand the Jewish principle of tithing that came from this Jewish tradition dating all the way back to the book of Genesis. Maybe you've heard the word tithe before, and maybe you've heard it in the context of, of kind of an obligatory, you know, you're supposed to give 10% to God, and that's, and that's what you're supposed to do or else you're a bad person. Okay, let's take a step back. 
originally the tithe, which really just means tenth. It was this spiritual response to God that Abram had back in Genesis chapter 14. Abram, the guy that would become Abraham, had been blessed by God. He, he had noticed all that God had done in his life up to this point and all that God continued to do. And so out of gratitude and celebration, he says, I'm going to give a tenth back to God as a way of saying thank you, as a way of celebrating all of God's good work. And so then in the book of Leviticus, this concept of one-tenth being turned back to God is codified into law, and it's established as a whole community-wide practice. No matter who you are, everybody is going to, is going to give a tenth of what they have, whether that's uh, the produce from their land, maybe it's the, the birth of their livestock, a tenth of what they have gets given back to the community through the temple. And even those who worked in the temple, pastors are included in this practice, the Levites, the priestly tribe of Israel. They too, they would receive the tithes from the community, they would take their income from that tithe, and they would turn a tenth back as well. This was a way of the whole community engaging in this practice of gratitude and celebration that would then be there to benefit the community, to help lift up those who are on harder times, and to help allow those who are enjoying a more comfortable lifestyle to bring themselves down a notch and remember that they live in a broader community. It was begun as this practice of community um, generosity and community care. And somewhere along the way, we turned it into this practice of obligation where we feel like we're supposed to give a tithe. Friends, let me say this. Generosity is an act of celebration, not obligation. It's taken Reagan and me quite some time to find ourselves at a place where we're tithing. We're giving our tenth back to God and our family. But there were certainly times when we were in grad school and just after trying to stave off debt that that was really hard. I want to say this. If, if the word tithe has been unhelpful for you in the past, I think we need to remember that these kinds of practices are targets that we're aiming at. And, and I don't think that, that we should shy away from them, but we also shouldn't take on this obligatory shame and guilt that may come with them at times. And instead, remember that these practices were supposed to be rooted in celebration and in, and in gratitude. And so, uh, unfortunately for the rich young man, that's not what financial generosity had come to mean to him. And I'll say more about what had shifted in his larger community in a moment, but let's just say that the concept of tithing had gotten kind of twisted up in the temple by the time Jesus shows up. So this rich young man approaches Jesus and he asks him a simple question. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, what the man thinks he's asking is, how do I get into heaven? Um, this is a question that many people would ask Jesus in other places in the gospel, and, and Jesus doesn't just have one routine answer. Jesus seems to sort of craft a specific answer for each person that approaches him. It's almost as though Jesus can see something inside their heart and can see what are those barriers, what are those blockages that are keeping them from living a more meaningful life with their God, because that's the question Jesus is really prepared to answer, not how do I get into heaven. That's not a very interesting question for Jesus. He's more interested in how do I live a meaningful meaningful life with God here and now today. And so Jesus responds to him in a way that, that the rich young man probably would have expected. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then the rich young man responds with one of the most hilarious responses in the Bible. He says, which ones? Something tells me he may have earned his money in the legal profession. 
And so Jesus responds again and says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody who knew a thing about the Jewish tradition would have heard these words and known that's pulled straight from the Ten Commandments. This is nothing new. This is kind of the the baseline expectation for people that lived in their society. And so the young man responds back to Jesus and says, I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? And that word lack jumped out at me this week. Some, for some reason, when I read uh, passages again and again, sometimes different words will just jump out. And I'll go and do a little researching, and I'll, I'll go down that rabbit trail of looking up Greek words and stuff, the fun things that we do in our spare time, right? And that word lack in the original Greek actually, it means to be missing something, but, but it, it really has a connotation of like financial or property ownership. And so, in a way, what he's saying is, I've done all these commandments. What is it that I don't yet possess? What is it that I don't yet own? What's not mine yet? So, even in his language about trying to grow in his faith, this rich young man is steeping this language in this concept of property ownership and what's mine and me, 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 mine, mine, mine. What do I not possess, Jesus? So, Jesus responds, If you wish to be perfect, we talked about that word perfect. It showed up a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Jesus commanding us to love our enemies. And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect just as God is perfect, then you need to try to love your enemies. And what Jesus is really saying there, that word really means if you want to be made whole, if you want to be complete, if you want to have an entire relationship with God where nothing's held back, then loving your enemies is part of that equation. And here Jesus says, if you want to have that complete, whole, complete relationship with God, then go and sell all your possessions, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. I want to say a couple of things here. First, he he tells this young man that if he wants to be complete, then he needs to empty himself of everything that he owns. Do you see the kind of uh, ironic play here that Jesus is doing with him? He's saying the one possession, you ask me what you don't yet possess, the one possession you lack is actually giving everything away. He's turning this young man's expectations on its head. And then he says, and then come and follow after me. You know, it made me wonder, is Jesus pitching this like exclusive Christianity where only people who are like so perfect and take a vow of poverty are allowed to become disciples of Jesus? Well, no. I mean, there's plenty of examples of people who have significant means who are followers of Jesus in the Scriptures. We have uh, plenty of folks that have not taken vows of poverty that, that lead Christian communities and are celebrated in the text. And we know that Jesus' disciples were far from perfect as well. But it says that the young man heard Jesus say this, and he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. I think the reason Jesus challenges him to sell everything he has and to give that money to the poor and then to begin to follow after Jesus is he's saying, if you want to follow me, young man, if you want to follow me, you have to be all in. You can't just commit a part of you. If you really are looking for a meaningful relationship with God, and not just like a a cursory surface, like I'm going to follow the basic rules kind of faith life. If you want something deeper, if you want something richer, if you want something that's going to lead you to eternal life in the sense that you're really finding the fullness of life here on earth, not just one day in heaven, but if you want that kind of a life, then I I need all of you here and not just part of you. 
know, I wonder and I ask myself, how often do I walk away grieving from Christ because like the rich young man, I find myself possessed by my possessions. I find myself unwilling to give up some of these tangible material things that, yeah, we can say they're trivial, but goodness gracious, if I add them all up throughout the year, it's easy for me to point my finger at Jerry Jones and say, how many people could you have housed for the price of that stadium you built? But then I look at my own life and I say, well, how much more could I be doing? How much more could I pour into my own community? How much am I really letting Christ guide my power, my wealth, my influence? There's a story that gets told several different ways, and each time it's about different people. Sometimes it's about ancient Celtic warriors. Sometimes it's about the soldiers for Ivan the Terrible. Sometimes it's about the soldiers for King Charlemagne. But the story essentially goes like this. There's a king who wants to wage war and conquer a land. And, and the trick is the king needs the church to endorse this campaign and so the church wants the soldiers to become baptized, but there's a problem because the king knows if the soldiers get their swords baptized, they won't be able to go and do the things they need to do to conquer this land in a violent way. And so the king comes up with this kind of weird have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too solution where he sends the soldiers to be baptized but instructs them to hold their swords over their heads so that every part of them is baptized except the sword. I've heard this story told in the context of the rich young man, and Clayton Oliphant, who's the pastor at First Richardson, a good friend of mine, he, he, he tells this story and he says, you know, as Christians, sometimes it seems like we walk into the waters of baptism holding our wallets above our heads, and saying, I'm willing to commit all of myself except for this, to the life and walk of Christ. First time I heard him say that, that convicted me. Unfortunately, that's not the way that life with Christ works. And so I have to ask myself this question on a routine basis. And I think this is a question we come back to time and time again. Am I willing to baptize my wallet for the sake of the gospel? Am I willing to see not just some of me, but all of me, including my money, my power, my influence, am I willing to allow all of that to be baptized for the sake of the gospel? Or what am I holding above my head? Now, in classic Jesus fashion, he doesn't just point the target at this rich young man. Jesus is not in the business of, of pointing out individuals and, and ridiculing them or condemning them because Jesus understands that in so many ways we're a product of our environments. We're a product of the systems that surround us. And, you know, I was reading this story this past week, and I kind of began to felt bad for this rich young man because I realized in reading the passage that follows that he's really, he's really a product of the people around him. And his decision to walk away grieving is more complicated than it may appear. So Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded by this teaching. And they said to Jesus, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Cue the bed, bath, and beyond tea towels. For God all things are possible. So what is Jesus really saying here? Is he saying that rich people don't make it into heaven? No, I don't think that's the point. To understand what he's getting at, you have to understand the way the temple had become distorted by the time Jesus arrives. See, in, in just a, a few scenes, remember that 
that story of Jesus going to the temple and turning tables over in, 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 in sort of a fit of, of anger, righteous anger, beginning to turn tables over of these money changers? What's happening is he, he sees the temple and he goes inside and he sees the kind of practices that this rich young man would have been familiar with. Initially, what had been a tithe that was intended to be a, a generous outpouring for the betterment of the community had become this kind of ritual of sacrifice where um, you had to go to the temple and provide a sacrifice that was in line, not with sort of where you were comparatively with the rest of society, but rather that was in line with your state of sin, that you had to go and atone for your sins by, by offering up sacrifices, and maybe you had a little sin, maybe you said some bad words that week, so okay, that'll just be one little dove. But maybe you'd done some really bad stuff, and all of a sudden, you're on the hook for a fatted calf and a couple of goats, and that bill is getting longer. And you see, the problem with this kind of approach to faith is that you had to be a certain kind of wealthy to be able to be in right standing with God, because if you couldn't afford the sacrifices, then you weren't able to be atoned, which meant you were, in, you were out of order with the temple, which meant you were on the outside looking in in your community. And so what was meant to be this great equalizer in terms of financial generosity was becoming this great unequalizer where the wealthy were being celebrated and seen as God's beloved, God's most cherished, and, and the poor were, had no access and felt like they were beyond the love of God. You can understand why this might make Jesus upset. The temple had become this plutocracy, which means that a small subset of people who were very wealthy were then in charge and lording over everybody else. And not just that, but they were using the language of God's love to do it. It's insidious. And so when Jesus says it is easier for a camel to make it through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven, what the disciples are hearing is, what are you talking about? Rich people are the ones that God loves the most, we thought. They're the ones who can afford all the sacrifices. They're the ones that the temple loves. They're the ones that are in right standing with God, right? And Jesus says no. We're all on equal footing when it comes to that. The rich don't have an upper hand when it comes to God's love. And in fact, they may have more to answer for because the state of their community and the way that the poor and the oppressed are being treated. My friends, Jesus is calling us out to reject a worldview where the wealthy are prized or even seen as closer to God or more in God's love than anyone else. Jesus calls us to radically rethink the role that wealth plays in our life of faith. Rather than seeing money as the source of our salvation, rather than using our funds to better my life and make my life as good as it can possibly be, Jesus asks those of us, especially when we are positions of financial comfort, to see that God leads us to a different kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice that blesses the lives of others. Rather than hoarding our wealth and wondering how it can improve us and make our lives all the better, can we instead pour ourselves out as a sacrifice that blesses other people? This rich young man walks away sad because he believes Jesus is asking him to give up the one thing that gives him greater access to God. Can we be called out of that kind of mindset and mentality? Because money won't save my soul. But it could empower the poor, or feed the hungry, or give hope to the hopeless. I see that kind of work being done here at AUMC, and I see it being done in our community by you, the people of Arapahoe. So my friends, what's the path that we're going to choose? Will we respond in the same way as the rich young man and walk away grieving, believing that sacrifice is this weird version of generosity that makes it all about me and my benefit? 
Or instead, can we be reminded that generosity was always meant to be an act of celebration and an outpouring for the betterment of the whole community so that we could all experience the love of God through a real, profound way so that nobody would ever have to question if they were in the sight of God's love. May our generosity communicate God's love in a real, compelling way to all of those that God places in our path. Amen.